you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in John chapter 1 again. Yes, this is three weeks so far in John chapter 1. We won't finish it today, so just embrace that and and go with it. Uh, While you're turning there, I just want to set the scene a little bit by asking you a a simple question. And and this is a little different for me. Uh, You don't have to answer this out loud. Uh, I want to give you that freedom to keep this internal. Uh, You can... You can resist that temptation to just speak, uh, but I, I, w- I want you to just for a moment um, think about this as we turn our eyes to God's Word. Uh, the, the question is simple. It is, what is the worst thing in your life? What is the worst thing in your life? I want you to answer that honestly in your heart. I, I want you to own that answer for the next few moments as we're talking. Don't, please do not play that game where you think, what is he trying to get me to answer in my heart? Don't, don't do that. Just what in your world right now do you think is the worst thing in your world? If you have to, write that at the top of the page so that you won't forget it or be tempted to change your answer at the end, because we're obviously going to come back to this. What is the worst thing in your life. With that question in mind, I would invite you to stand with me now and let's tune our hearts to God's word. One of the children asked me last week uh, why we stand during the reading of scripture, which I thought is a great question from a child. And I told him it's because we want to actively engage in what's happening when we read God's word. You, You may doze off uh, during the sermon. Now, I hope you don't, uh, but I pray that it, it, you don't have that gift of falling asleep while you are standing up, because there's nothing more important that's going to be said today than what I'm about to read to you from God's Word. Let us never approach His Word without actively setting our attention on what He would tell us. This is John 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would clear our hearts and minds. I pray that you would set the distractions of this world, of of our lives, of the the day-to-day. I pray that you would take those things and just move them aside. I pray that you would help us today to hear from you. And so in praying that, God, I'm asking that you would help me to not stand in the way I'm praying that you would not allow my my stammering tongue or my weak voice to sell short what you would say to your people today. And so, God, I pray that you would go to work on us. I pray that we wouldn't walk out of here today the same as we came in. I'm I'm praying that you would change me. I'm praying that you would change us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Over the last uh, few weeks, as we have jumped into uh, this first chapter of John, if you're anything like me, and, and honestly, I don't, I don't wish that on anybody, but if you are, um, you might have noticed there's a little bit of a continuity issue here in, in John 1. Uh, you see, structurally, this book just starts off a little strange, uh, right, right in the middle of introducing us to the eternal word, uh, right in the middle of introducing us to the true light, there was a, a three-verse section uh, in there about a man who was sent by God whose name was John. I heard it said one time that if you were to take the prologue of the Gospel of John and you were to turn this in as a paper to your ninth grade English teacher, she's going to take a red pen, she's going to circle okay, those three verses, verses 6 through 8, she's going to draw a red line down underneath verse 18 and give you a C on the paper. Because you don't introduce one character right in the middle of introducing another one. And that's exactly what John did, okay? But John doesn't, doesn't need a new teacher. He doesn't need the Holy Spirit to speak more clearly here. What we're being introduced here is, is, that, is that even in the middle of introducing us to the star of the show, introducing us to the Christ, he, he's taking a moment here to introduce us to, to one of the secondary players in the whole story. And so the Holy Spirit is grammatically incorrect. What he wants us to see is that John the Baptist, that the witness, as we're going to call him throughout this, he's being introduced here for a reason. And there's a specific reason that this man is being introduced here. This is one who R.C. Sproul called one of the most neglected characters in all of sacred scripture. We're going to see why the fourth evangelist here introduces us to the opening in, to John in, in what is effectively the opening number of the grand symphony that is the Gospel of John. You see, he introduces us to the witness at this point in his gospel because the plan and the purpose of God are wrapped up in the continuing witness of the church today. And so John, in a lot of ways, is going to serve as a prototype for us. And what I want to do is look at this through two different angles. On on the one hand, we have uh, the identity of the witness. We're going to see the identity of the witness. And on the other hand, we're going to see the content of the witness. Okay, so looking back, looking back at verse 19, you see that the Jews uh, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That's what they want to know. They want to know who in the world this guy is. Based on what we know from the other gospels that we see in scripture, right? We, we, it's clear that John had acquired uh, not just a small following. He, he's got a crowd who are following. Mark 1.5 says that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, and all were being baptized in the River Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. Okay, so this guy is drawing a crowd. His message is being heard. But we also know that John was a strange guy. If you know anything about him, you know he was not a normal character. Okay, this is a man who, who had a camel hair clothing, which is, is crazy itchy. I'm t- I don't have anything made out of camel hair, so I can't say honestly what that would feel like, but we're told it's very itchy. We're told he had a belt made of leather. We're told that he feasted on locusts and honey. That, that, I, don't, I don't know what you do with that. That doesn't seem like a balanced diet, right? But that's, that's this guy, and he comes out of the desert. And so he's this weirdo out there in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, he's got all of Judea, all of Jerusalem going out there to see him. And so rightfully, the the authorities, the religious authorities at that time, they, they go to see who he is. And their question is simple. It's an identity question. It's who are you? Who are you? Notice the personal nature of that too. It's not a, it's not what's your doctrine. It's not tell us the summary of all your beliefs. They're saying, who are you? You. 
Who are you? That's what they want to know. Who are you? We should take note of that. You see, before we even begin to ask him what he is about, they ask him, they ask him who he is. And that probably tells us a lot about what our culture today is, is more interested in. See, in our culture of, of speak first, speak often, and speak always, that, that's the culture that we seem to find ourselves in today. Nobody is without a word to share. And I understand the irony of me saying that to you. I'm, I'm saying the exact, I'm, I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm kind of criticizing. But this is, this is where we live today, where everybody always has to speak. What I'm going to tell you is that the questions of these priests and Levites is probably more it's probably more indicative than the question that our culture is asking of us today. It's who are you? What does the casual observer, what would the casual observer see about your life? How would they identify you? Could you be convicted in a court? Is there enough evidence to convict you of being the person that you claim to be? Based on what John was doing, based on how he was living, they came and asked him, who he was. Now, now look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, now he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The idea there is not that he did this over in secret, okay? To, to say that he confesses is to say he did this publicly. So it's not that he had a big crowd there and some people come and call him out and say, who are you? And he says, let's get over here and I'll tell listen, I'm not really the Christ, but don't tell all them. That's not the idea. The idea here is that it's very public, that he is professing it. It's even, it's even being shouted out. He's proclaiming it. In fact, it says it, it says it twice in there. He so openly confessed that he said he confessed and did not deny but confessed. This is a, this is a Greek way of communicating a very, a very firm reality that he said it, he said it, and he said it again. I am not the Christ. He confessed and did not deny but confessed it. Their response is priceless. You can kind of see the disappointment uh, there as well as a bit of indignation maybe. Then, what then? That's what it said. What then? Are you Elijah? It's like they're asking, okay, if, if you aren't the Christ, if you aren't the one who came to save us, if you aren't the one who can forgive our sins, you must be Elijah. And you're weird, so you kind of look like Elijah, right? So maybe you're Elijah reincarnated. But he again says, I am not. Okay, so look at what they say. Are, then are you the prophet? That's in verse 21. Now, now there's a desperation to their questioning. You know, if we can put ourselves there on the ground, we begin to sense their frustration. They're not getting the answer that they came for. Deuteronomy 18 told us that Moses said there that there would be another like him, a prophet that is like me from among you. So, so maybe this guy is the prophet, right? They've gone down their list. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? No, no. Then are you the prophet? John denies that as well. He's not a prophet like Moses. He's not a deliverer. He's not a liberator. He's not like Moses. So they said to him right back to their original question. They've come full circle. Who are you? You see their need there for an answer. They can't go back empty-handed. They've been sent. They've been sent there to find an answer. And like any, any normal man, when you're sent to do a job, you do not want to leave that job unfinished. So now it's this desperation season. It's who then are you? Again, I think this tells us a lot about what our culture is probably asking of us most of the time. Who are you? We're experts in everything except ourselves, it seems like, in our culture today. We can't go back empty-handed. We can't go back uninformed. 
We can't go back to our peers. We can't go back to our colleagues. We can't go to these people who have sent us without an answer. What do you say about yourself? I love how they ask that. What do you say about yourself? And so here's the identity of the witness. John responds, look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You look, even here in his confession, here in his testimony, he, he doesn't take any credit for himself. It's, it's almost startling how his response to such a personal question about his own identity is answered in such a sort of a self-effacing manner. He, he's, he points away from himself even to describing himself. You see, he knows who he is. He knows who he is. More important than that is that he knows, it, he knows who it is to whom he belongs. And this flies in the face of our, of our contemporary context, of our contemporary culture of, of individualism. John says nothing about being his own man. He does not tell the story of how he got this huge following to come out here. He doesn't tell them about his charismatic nature and why he eats locusts and honey. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. And we should probably notice that. We should also notice that he doesn't take offense to their question. Again, we we seem to be in a context right now where anybody who asks a question related to you is immediately met with skepticism. What are you trying to get at? What are you really asking? We are always looking for the question behind the question. Hey, how are things? What do you mean by that? Instead of, good. How are you? I mean, like we, we have gone from that 10 years ago to everybody just going, I don't even want to talk anymore. Just text me later. This is the world in which we live. We don't see that from John. He doesn't, he doesn't question their motives. He doesn't assume sort of wickedness on their part. He just answers their question. And in so doing, he demonstrates that he not only knows who he is, but he embraces who he is. You see, John knows what many of us have either forgotten or ignored. He knows that everyone, that we all belong to someone. Notice how he, notice the Isaiah quote. Just look at that, because I know you've heard that before. And so one of the things that happens when we've heard something, a lot of times we miss the little subtle things that are in that. But that quote from Isaiah tells us a lot. He says this, make straight the way of who? The Lord. Now we go, well, of course he said that. That's what Isaiah said. But when we talk about lordship, do we really know what we're talking about? See, to be the Lord in this sense is to be the king. It's to be the supreme authority. It's to be the supernatural authority over all of creation. The Lord is the one who commands. John understands that. He understands that he is not the point of the story. And so he points away from himself. You see, we cannot truly understand who we are until we understand whose we are. And I know that's probably not grammatically correct, but you can chalk me up like with John when you critique his letter too. Understanding that we all belong to someone helps us to understand the nature of our own rebellion. You see, when I understand that I am a subject of the king, that I, am, that I belong to him, my sin, my sin is not just sin in some sort of abstract sense. It's not just sin. It's, it's, it's what we would call high treason. When I sin against my king, I'm committing, I'm committing an offense against him. You see, to know that God looks on me not just as another created thing, but as his child, I know that it grieves his heart because I know how it grieves my heart when my children rebel against me. 
John understood that he belonged to the Lord. And that's how he chose to identify himself here. His identity is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. There is both humility and reverence. We just sang of that in that last song. Teach me, Lord, true humility, holy reverence. We see that demonstrated in John in this passage. We see the humility in the fact that he doesn't claim to be more than he is. Do you think for just a moment there was a temptation to answer that question? If somebody came and asked you, are you the Christ? I don't know, maybe I am. How may I help you? You know, there's an opportunity there. If you want to get a following, if you're just a charlatan looking to get a crowd to follow you, you might choose in that moment to claim that. And even if you were willing to, to defer that, no, that's not me. Well, then are you Elijah? Yeah, maybe. You know, it could be. Who knows? No, in fact, he is so humble in this that he sells himself shorter than Jesus will sell him later when he tells us that there is not another man born like John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist, or, or Jesus calls him effectively Elijah later. And so what D.A. Carson says about this is that he, he did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. He's so humble and so self-effacing that Jesus looks at him higher than that he does himself. That probably tells us a lot about how we should see ourselves as well. He was a humble witness. He was a humble witness. And then there's reverence in how he chooses to identify himself with the words of the prophet Isaiah. He's pointing away from himself. Pointing himself away, he's pointing away from himself to the Lord. The quote there is from Isaiah 40. And, and the, I, I don't have time to give you the whole of Isaiah 40, but the picture there is of a, is of a king returning to his people after, the, after they've been released from the Babylonian captivity. So he's making his way across the roads. He's making his way back to his people. And so you, you get the road ready for the king, right? If the king is coming to town, you do something different. Like, I will vacuum my house tonight before community group, and none of y'all are the king, all right? I mean, I love you, but you're not the king. If the queen of England says, I'm coming to your house, you mow the grass. In the south, we get new pine straw for that, right? Like, this is, we're calling somebody up at that point. We're going to make sure the azaleas are blooming at the right time. My yard will look like Augusta National when the queen's coming, when it's just me and my family, We don't need to talk about that right now. Our yard needs work. Anyway, you get the road ready for the king. In Luke 3, we see a longer version of this quote. He says, this is what John said. He said, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. So there's a practical nature that we hyper-spiritualize that all the time. What Isaiah was talking about is really smoothing over the hills. He was really talking about filling in the valleys. He was really talking about making crooked paths straight. But what John does is he takes that geographical illustration and he makes it spiritual because we know that his message is not one about road building. He is not interested in getting everybody out there with, with pitchforks and with shovels and whatever kind of equipment they had and smoothing out a new road from Bethany to Nazareth or anywhere else. His is a message of repentance. This is a message of repentance. What he's saying is that the Jews, that his people, including those members of this investigative team that have come to meet with him, he's saying they should make straight the Lord's highway that leads not to their town, but to their hearts. Make straight the path of the Lord. And that brings us to the content of the witness. Look back at 24 with me. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So, so we know at this point who the witness is. We know his identity. He's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. But we, but we know that doesn't have anything to do with an earthly shovel. The content of the witness is about the pathway to the heart. And he does this in two ways. The first, he does it through baptism. He says, I baptize with water. Baptism was not an entirely new practice at this point. John didn't invent that. He he adapted it. Uh, But prior to him, baptism was was an, an initiation rite for the Gentiles being brought into the Jewish community. And the priest didn't do it, but the Gentiles would be, be sent, okay, you want to come and be a God-fearer now? You want to come and worship Yahweh? Then you need to go and clean yourself up. You need to, you're a mess. You need to go get clean. Then you can come and worship. And so it was a simple and, and symbolic picture uh, that the Gentiles were unclean, so they needed to be washed. They needed a bath. Our youngest, is, uh, he's learning all about opposites. If you've been around him at all, you know that he's got the vocabulary of a college student, but the understanding of a preschooler. And, and so that, that means we get a lot of interesting sentences from time to time. Um, and, and a lot of times he doesn't know what he's saying. So he's learning how to, how to, how to figure out what these things mean. And he loves the, anybody, like the duck and goose books. He likes the duck and goose book of opposites. And he loves the page that illustrates the difference between clean on one page and dirty on the other. In fact, we just read this last night, and that's why I'm telling you about it now. Anyway, and so he read clean and then dirty. And every single time that he sees that duck coming up out of the mud hole covered in dirt, he goes, yuck. Okay, every single time. It's like, the, it's like the refrain that has to happen after that page. Yuck! That's the idea here. That the people are yuck and they need to get clean. And so the Jewish people understood that the Gentiles were ceremonially unclean. Man, they are yuck. They need to get cleaned up like that little yellow duck in that book. They need to get cleaned up, but they had never had somebody tell them that you're dirty. They'd always seen themselves as the goose on the other page clean and looking at his friend going, this is sketchy. It's time for you to get cleaned up. And so baptism as that symbolic rite had been in place, but never for the Jews themselves. It was John who introduced that to them. And in that, he's making a proclamation through his practice that the Jews need to be cleaned. He's telling him, you are yuck. You are covered in sin. You are in the filthy rags of sin and rebellion against a holy and just God, and you need to be washed. And so he introduced this sign to them. And all that he can do, fully aware of all that he is not, is administer the sign. That's, that's the water. It is the Messiah. It is the one coming, the one that they're looking for. Are you the Christ? It's that one who's coming, who's even among us now, whose who's strap I am not worthy to untie it. It's him who can bestow upon them the things signified, the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we know from the other Gospels that he also proclaimed a message of repentance. The outward sign of baptism is only useful as it symbolizes the inward transformation of a heart of repentance. 
This is why we can't just throw water on everybody on April 28th and assume that they're now saved and reconciled to God. I mean, if we could rent a big Holy Spirit sprinkler and do that on the 28th, that would be amazing, but that's not how it works, right? The outward sign only is, a, is it pointing us to this. What signs do is they point to something else. So what is being signified? It's the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. Well, only, only Christ can do that. That's what Mark, is, Mark tells us in his gospel, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. He came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What John is saying is that being a descendant of Abraham is not enough. Being born into the right earthly family doesn't redeem you. Being born in the right nation doesn't redeem you. Being born with the right color skin or being raised in the right neighborhood, attending the right church, or having the right number of friends, none of those can redeem you. None of those can save you from the cosmic treason that you have committed against God. Look, consider just Paul alone. Consider him in Philippians 3. He made it clear that he had, Paul, Paul made it clear he had the best pedigree that you could have to be welcomed into the kingdom. It's been a long time since we were there, but the last time we were, I think Disney was just introducing the fast pass idea. Anyone? The fast pass, like if you don't have the fast pass, now you need not go to the park, it seems, right? Because you're not going to get to play. The Jews have basically believed that they have been fast passed into the kingdom by virtue of birth. The Jews thought they had that spiritual fast pass in hand. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives his list. He doesn't just say this and leave it. He gives a list. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. He says, blameless. Those are bold claims. If we read Paul and think, oh, well, he's just confused. That is how he felt, that he was good enough. Paul says he stacks up against anyone. He gets to go straight to the front of the line, and we do this too. We do this too. Listen, I was born in a Christian home. My parents sing in the choir every week for my entire life. I've, I've missed 12 Sundays in my entire life of not being in a church somewhere, probably. I'm that guy. Some of you will not like me because of that, and I understand. Some of you will think, yeah, that's good. That's exactly who I am. I have all the outward quality. I've only, I, I don't do anything really bad except for that one time, and we don't talk about that, right? I mean, and some of y'all relate to that too. You've had your one moment, no need to go back there. We do this. We do the same thing that Paul was tempted to do. The same thing to go, look how good I am. God is so lucky to have somebody like me. John would have said that every one of our qualifications that we would put out there are valleys that need to be filled, that are mountains and hills that need to be made low. He would say that those are crooked paths that need to be made straight. Why? Because true holiness is only found in the one who is coming. Even he who is among us, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And that brings us back to our original question this morning. I asked you, what is the worst thing in your life? Now, I know at this point that was a long time ago. Uh, Maybe you forgot. What is the worst thing in your life? Maybe you said your job. Maybe like you hate your job. Maybe it's just the boss at your job. The job would be great if it wasn't for this guy who happens to be there. Maybe it's that one guy who sits in the cubicle across from you who stares all the time. I don't know. Maybe it seems like every office has that guy. Anyway, um, 
Maybe you said it was your health. I mean, maybe that's true. I, I know there are people here today who are legitimately suffering. I know that there are some in our body right now who are not here today because their entire family is sick at home with the flu. If you ask them that question, what's the worst thing in your life? Flu is probably near the top. Maybe it's your family dynamics. Maybe there are broken relationships. Maybe there are strained relationships that you just cannot figure out how to put back together. Maybe it's a broken heart. Maybe it's a dream that you've had forever and you just cannot seem to accomplish it. You just cannot seem to reach that point that you always wanted to get to. I'm not sure what you thought. I'm not sure what you wrote down. But what we see John proclaiming here to religious people, to people who claimed to fear the Lord, is that their greatest need is to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what I would tell you today is that more than any of those temporal things, whether it's health, whether it's job, whether it's success, whether it's, whether it is relationships, more than any of those things, the worst thing in your life right now is the sin that still entangles your heart. If you're like Paul and your pedigree is good, I hope you learn what he did, that all of those things, all of your supposed goodness should be counted as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what I hope. We tend to look a lot like the Jews in Jesus' day. We think we have the fast pass because we are good to go, and so we get to jump into the short line into heaven. For many of us, we need to remember what John Gerstner once said. He was, a, he was a professor who's long since passed, but one of his famous quotes is, says that the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. It's the things that you think qualify you for the kingdom apart from Christ. The worst thing in your life right now is whatever it is that is standing between you and your God. That is the content of the witness. And that's the enduring witness that we carry today. In Acts 2, there's this beautiful scene where the Holy Spirit has fallen. Tongues have fire, a fire have happened. Peter, the fisherman, stands up and starts preaching. Uh, the Holy Spirit moves in that. And he stood up. And as a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, he proclaimed this message. He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Listen, that is my cry to you today. If you're tired of hiding whatever that sin is, whichever one right now that is popping into your mind, whichever sin in your life continues to distract your eyes from Christ, if you are sick and tired of holding on to that, please stop. You see, Jesus paid for that sin at the cross. By his vicarious death in your place and through the victory that we have, have won through his life, we can receive the grace and the mercy that are free to us but cost him everything. He paid for our sin. That's the gospel it's that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that sin is not yours to hold on to anymore. If you're one of his children, you need to let go of that. You need to unclench your fist because you're holding on to baggage that doesn't belong to you. You're like a guy running through the airport just picking up other people's bags. And that never goes well, especially post 9 11. Like you're going to get tackled at some point. And that's what I know some of you feel week in and week out is you're carrying sin that doesn't belong to you anymore because Jesus already paid for it. You're trying to earn what's already been given. 
You need to see that. You need to let go of it. You need to confess it to him. You need to understand the pain that it causes in the heart of our heavenly father who is reaching his arms out to you and saying, I've already carried it. It's mine now. You need to turn from that sin today by grace through faith and live now unto righteousness. It's time for us to get ready. The hour is here. The idea that comes into my mind is that of a bride. We've had two weddings in the church in the last month, so I got weddings on the mind. But it's the idea that a bride doesn't show up at five o'clock for a five o'clock wedding. She doesn't show up and think, where's my dress? I think, I think you get there at like eight o'clock in the morning and you get dressed and then you take pictures and then you make sure your hair's right and then you make sure your makeup's right and you take more pictures of that whole process and somebody videotapes it and the whole thing is happening over and over and over again because you want to get ready because the bridegroom is going to walk out of that door. He's going to stand in front of the church and he's going to look with his eyes at you as you walk down the aisle. And this is, we're told by Paul, this is a picture for us of Christ and the church. Please don't wait to get ready until the bell starts ringing. Get ready now because the king is here. He's here. The door is open. Don't wait any longer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to work in me a spirit of repentance. I pray that you would forgive me for thinking that the temporal trials of this world are my biggest problem. Forgive me for thinking that getting a building ready and, and, and trying to make sure the right paint colors are on the wall and that the chairs aren't too stained and that we learn how to eventually work the thermostats. I pray that those would not be the biggest problems in my world. Lord, help me to cultivate a spirit of repentance Help me to turn from the sin in my life. And Lord, if there are those here today who are still clinging on to their sin, Lord, I pray that you would free them up from that. That by your spirit, you would work to release them because you are the great liberator. You are the prophet like Moses who came and set the captives free. And so I pray that we would live in light of that. Or we confess our need for you to work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray.